Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. My name is Doug McNeil and today I'm joined by new panellist and co-host Aisha Tandon. So our listeners might have seen you come up on some of the uh, social media streams for the Met Office. Could you describe what you're doing at the moment in the Met Office and the Hadley Centre? My job is a climate science communicator and what that means is that I take some of the really cool science that the Met Office Hadley Centre produces and I just try to share that as widely as possible. So generally that means sharing it with the government, so members of Bayes and DEFRA, and that's through doing things like briefing notes and paper summaries on important new science. And then there's also the general public side, which is more looking at the websites and trying to give people a better fundamental understanding of what it is we do here at the Met Office. And how did you get into this role? What were you doing beforehand? I actually started as an intern in the summer of 2018, and that was in the summer between my third and fourth year of university. I did this three-month internship, absolutely loved it. And then once I graduated last summer, I got the full-time job. Okay, so today we're going to be talking to Dr. Matt Palmer. Now, Matt leads research on sea level and the energy budget here at the Met Office, and we're going to be talking about a recent paper that he was involved with, uh, looking at the energy imbalance of the earth and the earth's energy budget. Matt, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, it's great to be here to have this new paper out and talk about it. As you said, I lead the sea level research for the Hadley Centre. So my main job is to provide sea level projections both globally and regionally. And as you said, also, I've got an interest in quantifying the rate of global heating. And we'll talk a bit more about that as we go through. Those things are those things are sort of inextricably linked, aren't they? The energy balance and the sea level research, which people might think that that's two odd things to put together, but they're really joined. Yeah, that's right. One of the most obvious linkages between them is that when the ocean takes up the excess heat that's associated with greenhouse gases being in the atmosphere and trapping more solar energy in the Earth system, one of the consequences of that ocean warming is for the seawater to expand. And that's one of the major components of global sea level rise. So there's a, a strong link between the two. Could you talk to me about this new paper? It's looking at the Earth's energy budget. It's quite an interesting way to think about the energy and the heat within the Earth system. It's a really big paper. There's a lot of really famous climate scientists on it. It seems pretty important uh, and a good idea as well. I mean, where did this idea come from, you know, the Earth's energy budget? I guess it's an idea in the scientific community that's been gaining traction over the last few years. The paper itself kind of came about through a long-standing collaboration which has been fostered under the global climate observing system and with linkages to WMO and some of the international structures that really help to foster collaborative science across the world. The idea for this paper actually got kicked off in a workshop we had in Toulouse in France in about 2018. Really what the paper tries to do is assess where the excess heat which is being trapped in the earth system by greenhouse gases where does that go within the climate system? So we're, we're very familiar with the surface temperature rise as being our primary metric of global warming. But actually, the surface temperature rise is, is kind of a consequence of Earth's energy imbalance. So that's the fact that there's more solar energy coming into the system than is being emitted by the Earth. And there's a few more details around that, but that's essentially how the Earth's energy imbalance works. So without the presence of greenhouse gases, then there is a balance between the amount of energy that comes into the system amount of energy that goes out but as I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with once you increase greenhouse gas concentrations you trap more of that energy within the earth system because it absorbs long-wave radiation that would otherwise leave the earth system and then the whole system warms 
the consequence of that energy imbalance we're most familiar with is, is global surface temperature rise, but actually there's many, many more facets to it. So that energy imbalance kinds of explains all of the observed changes that we see associated with climate change. That includes the melting of ice, includes uh, increases in rainfall associated with a warm atmosphere, being able to transport more moisture. It explains sea level rise through a number of different components. Primarily, that's the melting of ice flowing into the ocean, but also, as I mentioned briefly in the introduction, the expansion of the oceans as they warm. And really, the paper just tries to quantify, with the huge number of Earth observations that are available to us, tries to quantify where that energy imbalance goes and sort of present a view on, on how that's evolving over time as well. So I think it might be useful at this point uh, and think about the Earth and you know where the flows of energy are and what they're doing. So we start at the top and, uh, and where the energy is coming from. Yeah, sure. So, so you've got this energy coming in from the sun and some of it's reflected away and some of it's absorbed. Do you want to sort of follow the, the energies that comes down through the top of the atmosphere? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of in your mind's eye, I think you want to picture yourself as an observer out in space somewhere looking at the Earth. Basically what happens is sun solar radiation, so that's the same thing we feel in our skin when we go out and we have, you know, it's a nice sunny day today, you could go out there and you'd feel the effect of that solar radiation heating your body. So that is the, the mechanism by which solar energy gets into the Earth system. That happens at the top of Earth's atmosphere. Broadly speaking, one of two things happen. Some of that radiation is reflected straight back out into space. So that could be from the actions of clouds, or it could be highly reflective surfaces such as snow on the ground. So it might just get transmitted back out into space. Some of that energy gets retained within the system and it warms the Earth. And then the Earth, because it has a non-zero temperature, meaning non-absolute zero, it has a heat content to it. Sorry if that sounds a bit technical, but because it has a temperature, it means that it emits radiation in the long wave back out to space. So the energy budget at the top of atmosphere consists of the short wave energy coming in and then the short wave going out, which is the reflective stuff that we just talked about, and the re-emitted long wave radiation. And that's kind of the energy balance at the top of atmosphere. It gets much more complicated when you get into the Earth system because all kinds of interesting things happen. Basically, things like the differential heating rate, so this, you know, the fact that we get more sunlight absorbed at low latitudes and less sunlight absorbed at the high latitudes drives a lot of the fundamental circulations that we're familiar with, such as the ocean, the atmosphere, and they, and they act to redistribute that heat throughout the system. But the fascinating thing is that, you know, a lot of the, the weather systems and the climate, both the kind of natural variability and also the systematic changes that we're starting to see under climate change, I mean, it's ultimately all determined by these fairly simple, to, at least to understand roughly what's going on, kind of energy balances, which is all happening at the top of the atmosphere. So... So at some point, if the system isn't changing, you know, and it's the Earth just sat there sort of rotating around the sun in space and going around and the atmospheric composition isn't changing or anything, I guess you hit a balance of the amount of energy coming in and the amount of energy going out and you hit a sort of equilibrium temperature that the Earth gets to and everything kind of stays the same. But at the moment, we're perturbing that system. That's the cause of the, this energy imbalance. So that's absolutely right. Were we to have a, a stable concentration of greenhouse gases and a stable climate which is largely what the situation was prior to the industrial revolution back in i guess the 19th century well even before then probably like 17 or 1800s then really on average you have a balance between the amount of energy that comes into the system and the amount of energy that goes out and that's uh, often referred to as you said as an equilibrium climate but once you introduce more greenhouse gases 
or high concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that's when we start to trap energy within the system. And really, in many ways, I mean, certainly many of the author team of this paper really regard as this quantification of the energy imbalance and the rate of the accumulation of heat in the Earth system is really our primary measure, almost the most fundamental measure we can make of climate change. Because, as I said before, it's really surface temperature and sea level rise follows that kind of imbalance. So that's why it's such an important metric for climate monitoring and why I think the papers attracted quite a lot of really positive attention since it's been released was released last last monday so it's been out a very short while really it's interesting isn't it because you mentioned this thing earlier about top of atmosphere radiation and that's something i'd like to just mention really briefly because that's an important way of how we measure the radiation that's coming in and the radiation that's coming out so as you said when we tend to look at the energy balance of the earth we look at the difference between the energy that's coming in from the sun and the energy that's coming out from the earth and as you said, a whole bunch of processes are happening on Earth. Energy is being transferred constantly. And so the way that we tend to do this is by just looking, if I'm correct, at that top of atmosphere radiation. So we just sort of draw a line around the atmosphere, around the Earth, and say, this is the stuff going in, and this is the stuff going out. And if there's more radiation coming in than going out, then that's when we get warming. It's very interesting to see that the vast majority of the energy is actually going into the oceans. I think a lot of people think of energy and temperature increase, and they think of the land because that's where we live actually most of the interesting stuff to do with energy is happening in the water well about 90 percent of the energy imbalance goes directly into warming of the oceans so they're the single biggest component in that earth energy budget framework but there are other bits that are, may not be big in terms of their quantity but they can have large impacts so the next biggest term that's assessed in the paper is actually the land so the continental heating which accounts for about 6% of the total energy imbalance. And then the next largest term is to do with the cryosphere, the melting of ice sheets and glaciers. And obviously that has very important consequences for sea level rise. The smallest kind of individual term is actually to do with the atmosphere, which only accounts for about 1% or 2% of the total heating. And the reason for that is it has a very small heat capacity, so it has not much ability to take up heat. But as I Kind of alluded to before even small amounts of atmospheric warming do affect the amount of moisture that can be transported by the atmosphere so that obviously has very important consequences for extreme events like droughts and, and floods so much of that energy goes into the ocean compared to the other components and yet we know that the ocean isn't warming as fast as some of the other components of the system do you want to just talk about why that is and where that energy is going one part of it is simply that it has a much higher ability to store heat so it takes a long time. It's a bit like when you're boiling a kettle and the kettle's virtually kind of empty, you can kind of think of that as being analogous to a system that has very little heat capacity. So it warms very quickly, right? It's going to boil very quickly. Whereas the ocean is an enormous volume of water. I'm kind of imagining an enormous kettle now. <laughs> basically, I can't avoid an ocean-sized kettle. Like it's going to take a really, really long time, basically, for that to get warm. But you're still having to put an enormous amount of heat energy in to even raise that amount of water by a small amount. So that, I think that's fundamentally the simplest kind of explanation. Related to that is there are various ocean circulation patterns and things which are quite good at taking that heat away from the surface and burying it where it's out of contact with the atmosphere. So that would be like a secondary reason. I think going back to your kettle example, it's interesting because that's actually the way that I tend to remember it as well. I always tend to think back to my geography teacher talking about this exact concept, how some fluids and some objects can hold more heat than others. 
So he was talking about if you get a cup of tea, call the boiling water, add your kettle, get yourself a nice hot cup of tea. That's going to stay warm for a really, really long time. It'll take you a while to boil the kettle, but once the heat is in there, it's going to stay there for a while. If you put, say, a metal spoon into that cup of tea, the spoon's going to heat up really quickly. If you take it out, it's going to cool down also very fast. And that's because of this thing, specific heat capacity that we mentioned before, right? That oceans take a lot of energy to heat up. But that means once they've got all of that energy, it's going to take a really long time for them to release it again as well. So that's why we're seeing the oceans, I guess, taking in so much heat compared to the rest of our climate. That's a really good explanation of how the heat capacity thing works. That's a big part of it. Um, you know, the oceans represent quite a dark surface as long as there's not clouds or something or obviously sea ice and things. But a, a lot of the ocean is very dark with a low reflectivity most of the time. They also cover the majority of Earth's surface area, of course, about 70%. So the paper really builds on uh, previous assessments. So the last time that people had a go at assessing what the heat changes and the energy changes within the Earth system was as part of the IPCC fifth assessment report, which was back in 2013. And this paper really represents the first time the community has kind of come together to do this in a consistent way. Whereas the IPCC can review existing literature and kind of piece together a picture this is one of the real strengths of this piece of work is it's been the community coming together so many different parts of the research community focus on say the cryosphere the land surface heating all these different elements that's why there's this big 30 plus author team we're really needed to do this really comprehensive assessment you mentioned a really big author team it strikes me that there must be a lot of different ways in which you're measuring the energy that's coming into these different components of the Earth system, sort of in the ocean, and how would you measure some of these changes in the Earth system, and the, uh, especially in the depths of the ocean where we can't get to very easily, or in the cryosphere? How do you measure ice and all that stuff? It's a very good point that the observing system itself is very diverse, and obviously some quantities are better observed than others. I mean, global surface temperature, for example, is actually a pretty well-observed quantity compared to lots of the other bits which are tackled in this paper. So if I start with the ocean heat content stuff, these are observations which have been taken by uh, research ships or more recently a fleet of autonomous um, floating buoys called Argo floats, which have really revolutionized our ability to track the rates and spatial patterns of ocean warming since the mid 2000s or so. Uh, but really there are some big challenges with that because the data is quite sparse going back in time. But nevertheless, the approach that we take really to dealing with coming up with an estimate is to draw upon the work of numerous scientists who've all independently had a go at estimating what the ocean heat content changes for example and so most of the ocean heat content stuff is based on statistical methods applied to the historical ocean temperature profiles which have to be taken as an in-situ measurement so there's limited things that we can do in terms of satellite observations for assessing ocean heat content although there are some novel methods that are starting to be used they aren't included in the paper um, some of the other terms you mentioned, so for the ice sheets, that's really, again, it's a case of wide group of scientists performing their own assessment using many different lines of evidence. So they would use both model simulations, certainly satellite data, even local mass budgets on. on. So it's kind of a mixture of lots of different observing strategies and often some kind of input from models, even if it's just to try and steer some of the interpretation a bit. So the atmospheric heating estimates are again, a mixture of satellite-based approaches, I believe, but also quite a lot of input from atmospheric reanalyses, which yeah, I don't know if you've discussed those on previous shows, but effectively they are like rerunning the weather forecast type models, but they do it in a consistent way over a long period. So they assimilate 
the observations that have been archived as you go along. It's a bit like having a, a continuous weather forecast, which is still really those, I mean, those products really represent some of our best tools for understanding climate change and variability. So just going back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago about ice. So ice is a really big factor in our climate and it's very topical now given the Arctic minimum of sea ice for the year approaching very rapidly. What does all of this extra heat into the climate system mean for our ice sheet? The numbers we're trying to get out for this type of study are quite kind of aggregate numbers. We're trying to get a sense for tracking where the energy goes. So I think the important thing about the ice components is although they collectively represent a fairly small fraction of the heat uptake, it's absolutely crucial in that the energy that is taken up by melting ice obviously has massive impacts, as you say, and in particular the higher latitudes. One of the issues is that when you melt the ice, you tend to promote a greater absorption of energy because you're losing a lot of your reflective surfaces there. Um, so you so get this sort of feedback then, right, of ice melting, and then because the ice is melted, there's less reflective surfaces up there, and then even more radiation gets absorbed. Correct, so positive yeah. Positive feedback happening. Yeah, um, absolutely right. So there's a thing called the ice albedo feedback, which is talked about quite a lot in mm. uh, among the climate community. It'll be featured prominently, I'm sure, in the next IPCC assessment. That's one of the things that people are studying very closely basically for all the reasons that you that you're talking about right and then i guess the melting ice will also contribute to sea level rise so i know that the vast majority of sea level rise is due to the thermal expansion of the oceans i guess some of that is due to the ice melt as well right it's it's one of those things that's evolving quite quickly the relative contributions to sea level but ballpark figure is it's kind of about 50 percent thermal expansion 50 percent ice melt but what we know is the ice sheets are starting to melt much more rapidly now and, and actually ice melt collectively is starting to overtake thermal expansion in terms of its importance to the total sea level rise. So Matt, you've measured Earth energy imbalance, this EEI number. Could you explain um, what it really means? Uh, I think it's in watts per meter squared, isn't it? Could you explain what it means and what context it gives us for the environment and you know how policymakers might be able to use this to monitor what the Earth's doing and where we are? The first thing is, what was 0.8 watts per meter squared mean to the person in the street? So there's a few different analogies I think I can give you. So one of the funny things is it sounds like a really small number, right? 0.8 of something just sounds small, but actually the Earth's surface is enormous. And when you express it in the amount of energy that's been accumulated, which is in joules, it comes up to a mind boggling number. So the units are typically of order 10 to 100 zettajoules and one zettajoule is one followed by 21 zeros joules so it would take you a long time to write that out but let's convert it into something people might understand a bit better so one of the things i can say is that in 2018 it's estimated that the global population of the planet is 7.6 billion people so the heating rate for the later period i think from 2000 ish to 2018 within that paper so that 0.8 watts per meter squared we're talking about that's the equivalent of every single person on planet Earth boiling 50 kettles continuously. It's also more than 20 times the primary energy consumption of the whole populace of the Earth. So these are big numbers. It sounds small because it's compared to the surface area of the Earth. But another way of looking at it is if you took every square meter and you put a Christmas tree light on it, one of those little Christmas tree lights, that gives you a sense, you know, that it kind of adds up because it's just such a huge surface area, basically. And so that amount of energy, that's the amount of additional energy that we've had into our climate system since 
between 1971 and 2018, something like that. That's the average rate of energy accumulating within the system. And another important point about the paper is the rate of that energy accumulation is actually getting bigger, which of course makes perfect sense because as we emit more greenhouse gases and those concentrations continue to go up, we know we're trapping more heat into the system. I was asked a question about the kind of policy relevance of this. One of the things the paper does is it expresses the change in CO2 concentration you would need to get the energy imbalance back to zero. And we'd have to reduce the carbon dioxide concentrations by about 50 parts per million. And of course, we're not even talking about reducing them at all yet. Really what we want to do, like initially, is just stabilise them. So I think it indicates that we've got a long way to go to really get a neutral climate state. And another part of the policy relevant concerns how the EEI changes in future so whereas surface temperature stabilizes quite quickly if we're able to reduce our CO2 emissions, EEI stays positive for a long time. And the most direct consequence of that is associated with ongoing sea level rise, which will continue for many centuries and will have to be dealt with by policymakers, even if we are able to drastically reduce CO2 emissions. So I think in that regard, it's this more fundamental element of the system that has a different behavior to global surface temperature and it's certainly another aspect that we're very keen that policymakers are aware of so that they can plan, particularly in terms of the adaptation. Is this the kind of thing that will be produced every year? Do you expect these numbers to change rapidly or is this you know, it for a decade and we'll come back in another decade? The community that's been involved in this effort would like to see it happen a lot more regularly. I don't know how regularly that can be. I think that the sort of dream would be to do an annual update, the same as we update the global surface temperature. We didn't really touch on it much. It is mentioned in the paper. One of the other things about the EEI is it's a much more stable measure, meaning it has much less variability in it. So it's a much more reliable measure of the rate of global warming than surface temperature is on decadal timescales. There was a lot of discussion, um, a lot of heat, but not necessarily that much light around the hiatus, you know, the global warming slowdown. And I'm sure many listeners will kind of remember all that. But actually, we found that during that hiatus period, the EI didn't really change very much. So it's this very robust measure of the rate of warming and it's useful for monitoring from that point of view. But yeah, so I think the ambition would be to try and have this regularly updated. There are caveats, as you pointed out before. So there are limitations in our ocean observations and in all of our observations, really, in our observations of the cryosphere and even the atmosphere. You know, we don't have a perfectly observed system. So I think the other motivator is to think about those bits of the system we may not be capturing adequately and work collectively as the international community to better understand that. And then ultimately, I guess one of the big selling points of this kind of information is when you're really tracking the energy and where it's going, and you can use that kind of information to improve your climate models and your simulations, you will no doubt end up with more reliable future information because you can devise much more powerful tests and do much more rigorous evaluation of your modeling systems than you can with surface temperature alone. So I think it's the idea of thinking beyond your surface temperature, let's get into where does this energy go and how are those energy flows changing? Well, that's fantastic, Matt. Thanks very much for talking to us today about this paper. Could you tell us uh, where we can get the paper? I understand uh, it, it's an open access publication, so, so anybody can, can get to this paper. So the paper is available in Earth System Science Data. So that, as you said, that's a completely um, open access journal. And the title of the paper is Heat Stored in the Earth System, Where Does the Energy Go? 
Uh, the lead author is Karina von Schuchman, so that's von Schuchman et al. 2020. That's fantastic, and we'll make sure that that goes on the show notes. That's everything for today. I'd really like to thank Aisha for uh, co-hosting today. Thanks very much to our producer, Claire Nazir, and to our editor, Adrian Holloway. And for now, thanks very much for listening to the Mostly Weather podcast. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.